Hey everyone, welcome to Lubrication Experts. Uh, today, I've got a really important session that we're going to go through. I've got two very knowledgeable professionals, fortunately, who are going to help me out because I don't know that much about this subject. With me today, I've got Paul Hiller from ICML, as well as Ken Bannister, who is an asset management consultant with EngTech, but he's also on the board of directors for ICML. So for anyone who's uninitiated into, you know, one of my uh, listeners called it uh, Big Lubricant the other day. International Council for Machinery Lubrication is an extremely important industry body um, that helps really set the tone for a lot of the standards that we need to be meeting as uh, lubrication professionals. So this kind of comes on the back of a couple of documents that have been released. So ICML 55.1 was released a couple of years ago. Industry's had a little bit of a chance to read and get accustomed to that. And we're recording this podcast in expectation of the release of ICML 55.2, which is a new document. And so today we're going to kind of go through how those really fit together. I think it'd be a really, really good discussion. So both Paul and Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Yes. Good morning, Ray. Good to be here. Awesome. So this is going to be a bit of a three-way discussion, which we haven't normally done on this podcast, but it's going to be really good because both Ken uh, and Paul can add uh, their own sort of uh, unique viewpoints on this. So maybe it'll be helpful um, if we could just jump right in and and lay the groundwork a little bit for the discussion, because like I said in the introduction, ICML 55.1 was released a couple of years ago now. Um, could you please, for, for anyone who hasn't read the document or is not familiar with what it is, maybe give a bit of a brief outline of the purpose of that document. So some people might be familiar with the ISO 55000 asset management standard. Some people might be familiar with the PAS documentation that sort of came before that. So so how does 55.1 fit in with these, um, let's say, more broad uh, standards? You set the stage very well, Ray. Um, in, in 2014, when the ISO came out with 55000, uh, their asset management standard. Ken was already involved with ICML at the time. It was before my time, but the uh, ICML leadership went through it and uh, realized that it was a very broad document. It incorporates assets and people assets and financial assets and everything's in there. The physical assets had already uh, included the, the PAS documentation, but it was still quite broad. The, the thinking was, you know, here's ICML, the professional organization that's been certifying practitioners for years and years. Uh, what could we do to help our constituents use the ISO document when it's so broad? And, you know, between the ISO document and the shop floor where all the lubricated assets are, you know, was there enough information that somebody could take the ISO document and actually create a, a, a usable asset management plan for everything in the in the inventory on the shop floor where lubricated assets go? And the conclusion was, no, it's way too broad. And the ICML 55.1 document is what bridges the gap. You remember those cartoons where you got the, like the two professors talking in a looking at the big equation on the board and it says you start here and then a miracle happens. And then you end here and they're like, eh, let's focus on that uh, mystery area and be a little more explicit in here. And that's kind of what our 
document is intending to do is take that ISO information, bridge that gap so that asset managers who are responsible for lubricated assets would have some direction. Ken likes to call it a roadmap. And, uh, and so our document lays out this roadmap with a framework in 12 different areas that makes it easier for somebody to start with that broad direction from ISO and, and figure out what they should be paying attention to as they develop an asset management plan for lubricated assets. If you've gone to you know, 12 different uh, plants, Rafe, and said, hey, asset manager is responsible for all these lubricated assets, show me your lubricated asset management plan. And if they had one, we bring them to you, and I bet you'd have 12 different, totally different uh, examples of what of what these asset management plans would look like. Not one of them would necessarily be alike. They'd have different priorities and different things being considered. And it's, you know, like that old joke with the lawyers. You want 12 different legal opinions, ask 12 different lawyers. Now, Kind of like that. Everybody might have their own idea of what would make a suitable lubricated asset management plan. So ICML took this opportunity to, to get 45 people together and a committee to you know put all their expertise and standardize the entire thing. So then everybody's asset management lubricated asset management plans might have some consistency. I think from a career standpoint. You know, to move from one facility to another, knowing that there's a standard out there, we can raise our uh, operations up to this standard. It uh, makes everything more consistent, keeps everybody from guessing what should be in the asset management plan. It's unreal that 45 experts from around the world were able to get together, hammer it out, and, and come up with a standardized collection of priorities and considerations to be looked at for developing these these plans yeah so i don't think it's ever been done before yeah that's really great and um maybe i'll throw this question to to, to ken because you're both on on the board as well as being a, a sort of a practitioner in the field as well so do you have any reflections on maybe how the document has been adopted by the community like do you see it being actively used um have you seen it change lubrication practices at all in the industry What's your experience been? Well, um, lubrication is often the forgotten piece of any asset. I mean, it's not often described as an asset. Well, actually, a lubricant is an asset. It's, a, it's an engineered component. Uh, my, my background is actually in design engineering. And lubrication, I got early into lubrication. And it, it's fascinating where all the failures come from. 70% of all mechanical failures are directly or indirectly related to lubrication practice. And that's backed up by uh, Rabinovich and all the studies done uh, that have been done back, back to Jost and earlier. And, uh, and yet, it's still everyone thinks oil is oil, grease is grease, and, uh, and anyone can stick a grease gun on and lubricate. Uh, and it's unfortunately, uh, many people like to kill bearings, even though they don't doing it. No, they're doing it, but they decide to kill it with kindness. Uh, as well as other ways, you know. So it's, uh, but as far as the standard being adopted, is that it's it's um, uncanny. Paul's talking about the rule of twelve there, and we have twelve elements to the standard as well. <laughs> and uh, it's it's ironic, but um, but there it is, and and there are twelve elements that go to the heart of understanding asset management itself and looking after uh, machinery. 
but to answer your question directly, uh, I think I think that the standard has sold, and Paul would back me up on this, has sold, sold fairly well, but as, as a document itself, it is basically a, a guideline in terms of what you need to have in place to have a best practice lubrication program. Uh, as far as people adopting that at this point, I think there's a higher realization that uh, it, it is underlying to all success in, uh, in terms of managing machinery and into uh, longevity of the asset, but also to looking at um, energy reduction and um, better practices for the environment as well. It's directly related to all of those. And it's, it's not the... It, it, if there was a magic elixir, it would be looking at the lubrication program. And, you know, it's, uh, and as far as the standard is concerned, because we've now got the three elements to the standard, which is a standard for an ISO anyway uh, type of standard. And ISO describes a, a standard as a formula that describes the best way of doing something. Mm. And I think we really have hit the nail on the head here in terms of what's the best way to do something in the three specific elements of the standard, which all come together. And they're designed to be a standalone, uh, also designed to dovetail into many of the ISO standards that are out there, which includes 9,000, 14,000, of course, 55,000 is one that everyone's where we, where we harp in on, but basically we're looking at document management and documentation is very crucial to any, any um, management of assets. Um, and we're looking at um, 14,000, which is the environmental impact of what is you do to that machine. And of course, now we're looking at the, uh, the look at the, the actual asset management itself and, and what is an asset and, and documentation is an asset as well. It's one of the soft assets, but lubrication is particularly, a, it, it's a hard asset and it's an asset that is tangible and one that you, most people do not understand about. So the, the key to this in terms of 55.2 also is to actually tell, to explain to people how to use that asset and how to put it into practice. Hmm. Um, I so think the message is getting there. And I think only once the three standards come together, I think it's going to be amplified uh, considerably. Yeah. Maybe just to clarify a little bit, because you did mention three elements to the standard, um, which I'm assuming refers to 55.1, 55.2, and 55.3. Can you please no. just give a... Oh, no. Oh, so what is the three What is the three elements, just to clear okay. it up for the so audience? The way an ISO standard is... Oh, let me let me explain what the three elements of a standard are for us, okay, in terms of ISO directive. Yeah. Uh, you have the, the 55,000... 55,001, 55,002. Okay, so we have currently, uh, we now have 55.0, that's now been done, 55.1 and 55.2. I'll explain what those are first, and we're going to have an addition to that, which is 55.3. And so if you want me to go ahead and explain, I'll basically put it in the terms of what each element of the standard does. Yeah, you know, a brief description of each one would be really helpful. Okay, so 55,000 provides an overview of a lubrication management system and the processes applicable to the management of physical assets related to lubrication, its principles, and terminology. So it's like an opening document that gives you a broad view of what a lubrication management system is, and it describes it. It gives you all of the terms and terminologies that we're going to be using in 55.1 and 55.2. So that 55.1 is the what is it okay so what is it it specifies the requirements 
that uh, of 12 specific areas of control in a lubrication management system um, and for the effective and efficient management of a best practice lubrication management system that is um, the standard organ is, is audited against. So that's what you actually get audited against is 55.1. Now, 55.2 is the how document. Okay, so this gives you, uh, it's, well, I'll give you a One is like 60, 70 pages long. The other one is 250, 300 pages long, the how. The, the how. And it it's a gui gives guidance on how to implement, maintain, and um, control the lubricant management system. And so what this is is a blueprint for implementing a system or a roadmap, if you wish, in terms of the 12 elemental control areas uh, that, that constitute a lubrication management program or system. And, and what that does is it, it also gives in, uh, uh, which is really going to be helpful for most people, if what would an order to look for? So these are what the types of things and programs and uh, document management and stuff that you have to have in place when you're going to get audited against the elements that are in 55.1. Yeah, so th thanks so much, Ken, because I think that explanation really puts uh, those three elements into context. Now, I think what will be helpful, because a lot of the audience will have read 55.1 or at least be familiar with the contents of that document. And, you know, everyone's waiting in anticipation for 55.2, uh, right? This is like the next Harry Potter coming out. Um, <laughs> uh so I think what might be helpful here is to explain how some of the different sections might look differently in 55.2, because you've, you've mentioned that it's quite a bit um, larger and expanded. Yes. So let's take a, a practical example. You know, within 55.1, I think it's chapter five, there's a section on machine lubrication and the 55.1 document would outline some of the considerations that you should account for when selecting a lubricant. Right? Now, the equivalent uh, section in 55.2, would that be more specific? Would it contain a procedure? What should people expect from, from that version of the document? Yes, uh, that's a good question. And, and you've you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, there's 12 elements, uh, and um, in the standard itself on page two, we have like a, an interrelated lubrication program, uh, Rosette. There's 12 elements to that, and it breaks it down into the various sections uh, that come across from that in section 5.0. And then we're, so we're dealing exactly in section 5.0 with all those 12 plans that are in there, and each one of those is blown out in terms of a practical sense and so how would we go about looking at those from a practical perspective and uh, implementing it as such a program that an auditor will come along and understand that these people or this company understands exactly what they're doing and they've interpreted the standard. It's not a formula for every single type of industry. It's more of a broad formula from which an industry can take as, as, its, as its bones, if you wish, and add the meat to it, which is specific to their their, their business, their typical mm. business. So, for instance, a pharmaceutical company would approach lubrication slightly different than, say, a, a, um, a foundry. So, um, so, so you understand where yeah. I'm going on this. You can have a manufacturing, you can have a process industry. Uh, so if it's food, for instance, there'll be a lot of washout. There'll be all kinds of um, program, all kinds of uh, attacking elements uh, to the lubricants 
Whereas a pharmacy, it's all HEPA, a pharmaceutical, it's all HEPA uh, filtered and controlled in 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 uh, manufacturing suites and stuff. It's clean room approach. Yeah, that's that's in excellent. That, that, and I think that's helpful as well to set people's expectations yeah. of how specific is it going to be, right? So, you know, if you are in yes. an industry with specific needs, like like food industry, that the document will kind of point you in the right direction. Here's the things you should consider without being super prescriptive about, you know, you must follow step one two, three kind of thing, right? Because we, we couldn't get that granular um, to to every single industry. Along those same lines, when 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 we first came up with the concept of of a a document that mirrors the ISO document, but it makes it more specific for lubricated asset management. I mean, you know, to say to to sit here and say, well, ours is still somewhat general and broad as well, but out of necessity. But it takes that really broad, you know, thing just pushes it much closer to the shop floor and the different industries. All those decisions that have to be made, it's not so broad as in develop an asset management plan. Okay, next. You know, now it's develop a, a, an asset management plan for your lubricated assets. And here's all the things you should consider based on all kinds of information from all these experts around the world in different industries. And it just pushes it much, much closer. It makes it easier for people than to wrap their hands or their heads around what's left yeah. for their specific situations. They still have to bring that to the table. What are their specific needs and priorities and politics and budgets, all that sort of thing. But it's much closer to the shop floor now. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so maybe another question for you, Paul, as well, would be, you know, we've just heard about how interconnected 55.1 and 55.2 are, right? So there's, you know, basically if you go through the table of contents on 55.1, that'll be mirrored uh, in 55.2. So how are these standards going to be made available? Like, should they only be used in conjunction with each other? Can you buy them? You know, would you be able to acquire them separately or, or is that really not, is it not helpful to have 55.2 without having purchased 55.1 in the first place. Maybe if you can help sort of like with well, some of the practicalities. Jim's going to have a lot of input here uh, since he's been uh, uh, working with 55.2. My experience has been with just 55.1 out there in the market and uh, self-publishing that out of our office, well, out of our office, basically, um, where I've been, been advising people that, yes, 55.2 is coming, but... The 55.1 requirements document can lay so much groundwork that if you want to be ready to use 55.2, go ahead and get 55.1 now. That's why we went ahead and published it in 2019. It didn't need uh, part two right away. But to to go backwards, I don't know, that doesn't make sense to me. The way we went about putting this together, uh, 55.2 is 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 follows the 55.1 very closely. And, and as you know, in each of those sections, it may have 20, 30 points that it, that it talks about. We've taken all those 20, 30 points and broken and basically exploded them out in terms of how would you implement that? What, 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 is, what is exactly what meaning by what we're saying in that and what are we looking for? And, uh, and so therefore, uh, we tried to make the 55.2 as a standalone document. If you only bought that... Um, and um, then you would have a book and you would have a book that tells you how to implement a best practice lubrication program. 
And it would also tell you that if you ever wanted to get audited, uh, they, these are all the elements that you will have to have in place that an auditor may look for. And so you better have them because you could be asked anything in an audit. They don't ask you everything. They're very pointed and they go and they look and they see, ah, I'm going to, there's a weak point. There's a weak area that's not in the standard, that's in the standard, but they've not necessarily got a hold on it. Then they'll ask the questions, how have you gone about this? Show me how you implemented this. Where was your implementation plan? So there's all of those elements. Uh, did you do a consolidation program on your lubricants? One of the basic standards that you should do right from the, almost the onset. If you haven't got that, it'll tell you. If you haven't got that, you haven't got a program to be put in, in place yet. So those are the, if you don't understand your lubricants, uh, you don't understand your machinery. So so that's that's where the real value of this is. It's basically a standard. It will have an ISBN number. It could be purchased alone. The 55 O tells you what the how the standards harmonize and how they work together. 55.1 tells you the actual things that you'll be audited on, right? And it goes through the, each each of those points. And and as I said, you can buy, you can you're going to be able to uh, buy them as standalone documents, or you can buy them as a box set. And they're all going to be released as a box set at the same time now. So there's a surprise. There's there's the breaking news for you there, Rafe. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. That, no, that's, that's really yeah, good so to know. You, yeah. And I think maybe this yeah. is a bit of a sidebar question, but one that a lot of professionals in our industry will, will want to know as well, because uh, ICML 55 felt like it was intimately tied to the MLE certification, right? So the, the kind of the purpose of setting up that, that extra certification program beyond MLA and MLT was to ensure that we had some kind of certification which directly aligned to ICML 55. Now, the other thing is that MLE was released in advance of some of these documents, right? So we had an MLE certification well before 55.2 was going to be published. So now that you know we've assembled this, this team of experts and they've put together this um, rather larger document, let's say, have there, have there been any findings in the process of doing that which might alter the body of knowledge for MLE? It would definitely alter the domain of knowledge because now we have 55.1, too, yeah. right? 55.0, we should have in there as well. But the body of knowledge, um, I, I, that's it. Actually, that, that's a good point. We, we followed we followed it through and we've kept an eye on that and we tried to come to, but we've tried to make it independent of that so it's not an MLE document. And Will that, that's that's a good question, Rafe. And I think we were obviously we're always going back checking on uh, new new things come come out of uh, the processes that we put in place. Uh, we go back and we're going to check and now and see how fifty five o one and two all dovetail into the different standards at the different levels. Yeah. And of course uh, that and and that, that that's at the time I think what we would look at the uh, the body of knowledge to see if it's not been enhanced in any way that we're if we're missing or disconnecting at that point I don't think we are but it's a, it's an excellent point and I think it's something that we've uh, we we have to do um, once on, on the next step yes. and the exams are always yeah. uh, getting the exam question bank is always getting reviewed uh, for content and clarity and uh, updating questions and such. So it, it only makes sense that once this 55.2 gets tacked into the domain of knowledge, that it's it's going to probably wind up getting utilized some as the MLE would just by 
regular course of action is going to get reviewed and that's going to get considered for some of that. Yeah, that's, uh, yep. that's a great point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, maybe one other thing to touch on as well, and we've ref already referred to this sort of panel of experts that help put together the documents. Um, I think some people would be interested into like how was that panel assembled? We don't obviously have to call out all 45 names, but um, you know, how did you put together that panel? And um, you, you mean you spoke to some of the challenges of how do you get consensus across a group of 45 different professionals as well, right? Because you know, our experience in the field is often that there can be differing opinions on what is best practice. Um, so how did that all come together? Boy, that was, uh, like I said, that was before my time. I'm not sure particularly well the, the details. Ken, you were on that list, if I, if I remember right. Yes, it was. Uh, yes. Yes. You might have, you might be able to speak to how you were contacted and pulled in. I know that uh, the ICML uh, leadership, there was a, uh, a core editorial committee at the time that went and contacted. Uh, this, this is my recollection. So, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong. Went and contacted a variety of people who were familiar with different markets and different topics, knowing there's only going to be 12 areas, but you're reaching out to the 45. And a variety of them were all writing in all their feedback. And I think there was an editorial committee that poured through that and uh, tried yes, to stand, you know, tried to pull everything into the 12 areas and then sent all that back out to all the players to get their uh, consensus. And, yep, that looks like it makes sense and is, you know, an approachable way to present all the the content. Is, is that your right? I think that's an excellent way of describing it, Paul. Yeah. And it, and it was, it was uh, based like like most things on the ISO method of uh, putting uh, fifty five thousand together is was done exactly the same way. Uh, so it had good it had good bones and good roots there in terms of uh, the methodology. And, and you, you're right, Rafe. Uh, to try and get forty five people experts in the room to agree on one thing is not an easy thing, right? So 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 what? So there's an allowance in there, obviously. And um, we all know the 12 elements there. I think there was total consensus of the 12 elements. Um, so that's why the descriptions within them, uh, there was latitude to actually give expression from the different people and bring in different opinions and say, okay, well, that, as long as they harmonized and came together, uh, uh, th then it became applicable. And it's much like uh, going through... Uh, if I do a, an LO, a lubrication operation effectiveness review in LOAR in, in a corporation, um, the questions are asked on all different levels for different for different people who have, are involved with lubrication in different areas, and um, it's not always the same question set that gets given to them. But when it comes back in, it comes back to a set within those twelve specific areas in terms of where their strengths and weaknesses are. So you can you know you can do the spider diagrams then and see where their improvements are, where their weaknesses, and uh, and then give them a, a solution or a, a prescription for, for moving forward. And that's exactly how uh, when when someone does an audit to a to a standard works as well. So it's a, and and everything's interpretive from an audit perspective. So the, so the auditor has to be taught as well, which brings us to fifty five three, right? Which is going to be an auditor and an assessor. So an assessor is an internal auditor and, and an auditor is an external third-party auditor, a professional auditor. So someone like uh, BSI or SIA Global, um, you know, the, the normal the ones that do 55,000, right? So uh, 
and uh, 14,000, 9,000, because ISO doesn't audit anybody. So, so it's, it's a professional order that comes in, but, but they, have to have, they have to be taught as well. They have to be uh, schooled and uh, trained as to how to interpret that, that uh, set of collection in 55.1 and how to understand what they're looking for. Um, so that's where 55.3 and, uh, comes in, and uh, it's, it's likely not going to be a uh, for sale uh, piece of it for the, the general public. It will be for assessors and auditors that go through that, that training system in there. So it's, so it's a tied to it, but the three, the three standards, uh, O, 1, and 2, are a complete set and will go out as a complete set. Um, and that's the end user will will uh, take all yeah. of those. Yeah. So that that's an interesting point. So um, I think maybe a lot of people in the audience might, might not realize that that's kind of the end point of this process is that getting to a process of actual certification, um, you know, for ICML 551. Uh, now, for, for a lot of industries, I mean, certification just to the ISO standard is a relatively new thing. Here in Australia, actually, it's been reasonably widely adopted, especially because the government um, kind of gave a thou shalt um, be ISO 55,000 compliant uh, if you are in a, a government controlled industry. Um, so the adoption yes. here has actually been pretty strong. Um, so could you maybe describe a little bit more about about that process? You said that there would be someone individual uh, as an assessor, and then you would have an external uh, certifier. Yeah. Um, but how is ICML itself going to administrate that program? Okay, so 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 what happens next is that um, the audit process has to be structured and the the actual what is it we're actually looking for so so there is a an element that we how are they interpreted for an auditor for what to look for specifically and the latitude that they can give in various elements of it and uh, and and so that has to be pulled together now which is the fifty five three and uh, then we have to go through uh, certifying auditors to actually do the audit on behalf of ICML. And then the training of those auditors. Now, the way the way if any, I don't know if you've been through a fifty-five thousand or a nine thousand an ISO audit or at all. But what happens is is that a consultant usually comes in, and they will look at your current state, and they will assess your current state and against the standard, and then look at where your um, where, where your areas of strengths and weaknesses are in terms of what the audit what the the consultant feels that you need to have in place before you go through a preliminary audit. Now, and to do that also, what they will put in place, or they should put in place if they understand how how a standard works, is so what, what we do is we would uh, put in, a, in place an internal team. You need to understand who your stakeholders are within the organization. And then you need to understand how all of those work together through the systems that you currently have in place. So that's your asset management program, your, your CMMS, all of those elements that go with that. Are you are you reporting to the stakeholders? Do you know who your stakeholders are? Uh, you have a system champion in there who's funding all of this to move it forward. So you have someone that you uh, sort of have to... Uh, report out to on a regular basis to make this work. Then you put into place a management action plan or map to actually take you down to the point of ready for assessment. So in doing so, you build an internal team who's like oh. your internal quality team. 
that's looking to say, oh, do we have this? Do we have this on the a bunch of tick lists? And those assessors are trained uh, to actually, uh, they're trained by auditors usually uh, to, to perform a, a mock or dummy audit in preparation for the preliminary audit. Then the auditor company comes in, they will go spend two to three days within the organization. They will look at all your paperwork. They will look at all your uh, all your planning documents. They will look at, uh, they, they will do a physical walkthrough in your plant. They will look at your work order, your work management system, your reports, and they will speak to multiple peoples at different levels. Because don't forget, this has to roll up to management and management has to understand how it rolls down to the shop floor. That's how 55,000, that's how 9,000 works. Everyone is a piece and a part of that and needs to understand what's going on. Did you broadcast it? Does everyone know what's going on? Uh, it's not, yeah, so it, people need to know what's going on in the plant and that this is what you're, you're striving toward. So it has to be meaningful in that regard. So that's what they're looking for in that element. They will then go to do the preliminary audit. They'll come back and give you an assessment of major and minor faults against that. So, uh, so, so for instance, I did this with a company in Canada and uh, 55,001. It was the first audit ever in North America. And we had to go and teach the auditor what to look for in the audit. So we actually trained the auditor on how to, uh, how to understand 55,001. So it's not my first down, down this roundabout, right? So it's, uh, and, and then they went through it. They were assessed with, with two minors and I wish they had like 60 days to complete. Um, and so, so they give you time and then they come back. So your internal assessment group will then go back a second time and then say, are we ready to come back for the real audit? And so the real audit comes in and once you have that, the assessor, the, sorry, the auditor says, signs off. Yes, you've completed. You are now certifiable. That's then sent to ISO or to ICML and, uh, they will prepare all the paperwork. And then there's a big announcement and, uh, a fanfare. And they're allowed to fly the flag and allowed to put ISML 55 once certified uh, on all the documents and everything. That put, you know, address plaques and stuff like that. And uh, everyone gets jackets and stuff. But it's not just this. It's not about that, right? It's really about the mindset. Now management truly understands how a, a lowly substance like lubricant can actually affect the entire organization, and uh, which is what we've been wanting to do for years and years and years. It's that we go out and practice. So, it's, uh, so that's roughly what it is how it goes through. So, so from our perspective at this point, then, uh, what we have to do now is we have to train the auditors. We have to put this in place. And it takes on average, well, to perform a paradigm shift uh, from one, one set of, of uh, paradigms to a new set of paradigms and new practices takes on average around 18 months. It can occur in six uh, but on average, it's around 18 months to really change people's perspective. Well, they, well, they're coming back. You know you've got it when they come back. Well, I told them years ago we should be doing that. It's about time they did that, right? And they said, well, you know, well, we've been, we should have been doing this forever. Why, why, didn't we, why were we back? You know you've changed the mindset. The paradigm has been reset. But, it, but that can take up to 18 months to two years. So when someone's going down on this journey, um, it, they don't have to have 55,000. You can, we're just doing the lubrication management program, which sets them up ready to go for 55,000 if they want to. So it's a really a great stepping stone if they've got mechanical equipment. And it really does a, a precursor to the big one, the big ISO, which is everything in the organization, right? So it's, uh, 
So it, it can be adapted very well in terms of the precursive um, certification to get. And, and as I said, it, they can be ready for this if they're really diligent in around six to eight months. Um, usually it's like 12 to 14 months before they're ready to have the audit space. So we, um, ISO, uh, sorry, ICML is uh, expecting to perform audits within a year to two years time uh, start to, once once people start to adopt it yeah wow that's uh that's a you know fascinating insight as well um i, I like the idea of um, icml 55 almost being like a stepping stone right so you can get your organization used to the process of audit follow-up yeah. and all that kind of thing in preparation for you know the big iso 55000 audit that your your organization yes. might be aspiring yes. to as well so that's uh that's a really interesting uh, idea one one last question as well so what we've basically done in the lubrication community uh, and obviously it's mostly the folks at icml have done is taken this very broad asset management standard you know fifty five thousand. you know I, i've seen a few people comment that if you do a control f and you type in lubrication, like lubricants just never appears in that standard, right? And so that really drives the need for um, some more specific standards, which is what ICML 55 is. So an obvious question would be, are there any other like-for-like organizations doing similar activities? So let's say, for example, I mean, lubrication kind of uh, sits across a few different areas, right, where Lubricant analysis is kind of a you know, predictive maintenance technology, but lubricants themselves are considered assets. So we sort of fit in a number of buckets. But let's say, for example, in the vibration analysis community, are they doing anything there to make ISO 55000 more specific? Or um, are, are there any other areas where this is being done? Or is, is ICML a bit of an outlier here? I have not been made... I have not come across any... I understand your question. You're like, hey, if we thought of this a few years ago to, to come up with a companion standard for lubrication, then uh, surely some other organization has also thought to come up with a targeted document for their area of uh, expertise. And I have not run across anything, but you know, I'm not out in the field so much as Ken might be, um, but nothing is... Nothing's been brought to my attention. It's an excellent question. And what do you, do you know, Ken? No, I, I it's, I, absolutely no. Not that I know of, but uh, I, I think we're, we're breaking new ground. It, yeah. it, uh, believe me, Ray, it's a, this is, was a massive undertaking, a very, very expensive undertaking. A very, but 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 an absolute requirement if if uh, lubrication is going to be truly understood out there in the world, right? And and it's groundbreaking in that perspective. I think we've set the model is what we've done. Yeah. I think we'll find that in in a couple of years' time we'll be seeing other other areas of uh, non-destructive testing utilizing because you know, that would probably be under a total NDT banner with you know with vibration and uh, infra infrared and uh, so, uh, you know ultrasonics and stuff i think all that will come under under uh, predictive maintenance banner sort of thing um, qualification but you have to have a governing body that meets all of those together they don't have that yeah. yet yeah we have that for lubrication uh, specific to it and it's very very broad every every machine that's made out of metal or any material that moves it has to be lubricated it has to be understood this tribology that occurs right 
And so we've taken the tribology and made it, we've, we've not gone down the tribology element of it. We've stayed with the practical uh, lubrication management side of it, which is where, which is where it all fails. I guess what yeah. I, I just wanted to highlight with that question uh, was that this is um, really, really groundbreaking. There was a lot of work and a lot of effort that went into this from the, the ICML, you know, the, the technical advisors, as well as the board and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I can encourage this community, the lubrication community, as much as possible to get behind this because um, this was a massive effort, but it's also of huge benefit to us, right, as professionals. Right? We now have, in, in many ways, kind of like the gold standard of how to implement um, asset management, but specific to, to our technology, right? And that is, is something really groundbreaking. I think it's a, a fantastic thing that the ICML has done. And if you haven't got your copy, or you haven't, you're not on the wait list. You know, please do so because all of this stuff needs to be funded. Um, you know, but please get behind the ICML and and share it as, as widely as possible because I think it's a it's a really good thing that you guys have done. It's just along those same lines, Rafe. All, ICML has always been more than just a certification body, and we've been limited in scope for our mission to be just the certification exams, and that's it. This may not have crossed the minds of the ICML uh, leaders back, you know, nearly ten years ago. But because we uh, we're also an awards body and a and a membership body, but a standards body, we've always had some involvement with the different standards. And so, when this opportunity presented itself, you know, what good is the ICML if we didn't pursue this? Really, it was it's within our mission to to benefit the practitioners out there. And if we didn't do this, uh, it, it we'd just be totally remiss on our on our mission so it it was just an it was just a natural out a natural opportunity well um paul and ken you know thank you so much for your time i think that really has clarified you know what these documents are for how they're going to be used what the intent is in the future i think that that the direction towards certification is something that maybe a lot of people didn't understand um so really you know thank you so much for your insight and uh, if anyone has questions, uh, please chuck them in the comment section below and uh, we can probably get some answers for you. Certainly. Thank you. Thanks Rick. so much for having me. Pleasure.